Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're about to, about to begin, so if everyone can grab a seat. Uh, I want to welcome everybody this morning to the Cato Institute, uh, everyone here in the Hayek Auditorium, uh, everybody joining us online on the streaming uh, version, and those following us on Twitter uh, using the hashtag ProtectRL. So throughout the day, if you want to participate in a Twitter conversation or tweet out your thoughts or whatever it is you like to do on Twitter uh, and you want to recognize or have other people recognize you're at this conference, it's hashtag ProtectRL. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, before we begin, I want to especially thank the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation for sponsoring today's conference. Uh, today we'll be tackling a topic uh, what, that may have reached, I think, if you think about it, uh, potentially its hottest point in, I think, several decades, and that is the topic of religious liberty. Uh, religion for good or ill is directly involved in lots of debates and events today. Uh, whether it's who must follow medical insurance mandates, what bathrooms and locker rooms school children may use, or the atrocity we saw committed in Orlando over the weekend. Uh, these and many more uh, thorny and vexing issues uh, bring back to the fore a debate we've really been having since the beginning of uh, or from America's earliest days. What ultimately should be the relationship between church and state? Uh, we'll be tackling in depth numerous aspects of this throughout the day. I'm just going to give you sort of a, a little foretaste of what that'll include. So we'll be talking about the nexus of religion and education. That's the first panel, uh, which has been, I think, perhaps the most constant and contentious church-state issue of all. Maybe people don't think about that, but you will, I hope, after the panel. Uh, we'll talk about why religious freedom and toleration have been and are crucially important to society. Uh, we'll talk about intolerance on all sides of religious debates, how religion gets ensnared by partisan politics and the need for religious liberty for all people. We'll talk about public accommodation, and public accommodation laws, and how they should or should not be limited by religious objections. We'll also talk about the right to be left alone in religious matters and the dilemmas facing religious judges. Uh, clearly, we have a full, and dare I say, a bountiful plate to deal with today. In the interest of getting that plate cleared and everyone stuffed to the gills with knowledge and understanding about this topic, I want to move directly to our first panel. So if our first panelist could come on up. Uh, and I like to think because here at Cato, uh, we're nothing if not expert logisticians. Behold the extraordinary efficiency of my transition from introducer to the conference to introducer of the panel. So I am also introducing this panel. Um, and I first I have to say about this panel that I'm just really excited about the panel and the people who are on the panel. We have terrific panelists who do great work that I followed for a long time and whose work I've really admired. Uh, so from a personal standpoint, I think this panel is just kind of cool. Um, but of course, getting together cool panelists is not really the point of the panel. Uh, and you may all want to hear cool panelists too, though. Uh, but the point of this first panel is this to discuss the long and fraught relationship between religion and education, 
which I think is absolutely critical to understand, but I think especially within education, we don't talk about it enough. The purposes of, of education have been sort of reduced to test scores. How good your math test score and how good your reading test score, how high are those scores, but I think this is a much more fundamental, much more important topic because it involves not just the raising of the newest Americans, the next generation, which is the public good aspect of education, but also it involves every unique family and their unique children. And it inherently, I think, brings to play kind of basic, often very personal values, including, of course, religious values. Those are inherently caught up in this. So how you balance this public good aspect of education with religious rights, including religious equality, I think has constantly revealed itself to be a kind of a minefield of almost limitless acreage. If you look back in history, and we're going to talk about that, this has been something that has gone on for a very long time and always been a big problem. To lead our discussion this morning, it's my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Jason Russell. Jason is a commentary writer for the Washington Examiner and previously was a researcher for Economics 21 at the Manhattan Institute. He also, I should say, covers education extensively for the Examiner and even occasionally takes a really big chance of being ridiculed and asks me some questions about education and occasionally prints what I said. Uh, he is a, also a graduate of the University of Rochester. Jason, all yours. Morning, everybody. Uh, as, as Neil noted, I do write about education for the Washington Examiner, but I don't think he knew this when he invited me, but I'm also a deacon at my local church over in Clarendon. So the, the issue of religious liberty uh, does have a particular interest for me in both the education side and in a, in a personal interest. Uh, so first, we're going to uh, introduce all of our speakers this morning. Uh, and uh, we'll start on my far left here. We have Charles Glenn, who is a professor of educational leadership at Boston University teaching courses in education history and US and comparative policy. From 1970 to 1991, he was director of urban education and equity efforts for the Massachusetts Department of Education, including administration of over $200 million in state funds for magnet schools and desegregation, and initial responsibility for the nation's first state bilingual education mandate, and uh, initial responsibility for, I'm sorry, and the law forbidding race and sex discrimination in education. His research in Europe and North America focuses on urban schooling, parental choice, schooling of linguistic and racial minority pupils, religion and education, history and sociology of education, reconciling national standards with school autonomy and distinctiveness, school de desegregation, and equity. He is vice president of an international organization promoting educational freedom and the right to education and serves on the Massachusetts Advisory Committee to the US Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, next on my immediate left, we have Jonathan Zimmerman, who is a professor of education and history uh, and director of the History of Education program at New York University's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development. He also holds an appointment in the Department of History of NYU's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. A former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher, Zimmerman is the author of numerous books, including Campus Politics, What Everyone Needs to Know, too Hot to Handle, A Global History of Sex Education, and Small Wonder, The Little Red Schoolhouse in History and Memory. His academic articles have appeared in the Journal of American History and the Teacher's College Record and History of Education Quarterly. He is a frequent op-ed contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New York Republic, 
sorry, the New Republic and other popular newspapers and magazines. Uh, we're also blessed to have his parents in the audience with us today. Uh, next, on my far left, we have Charles Haynes, who is the director of religious freedom of the Religious Freedom Center at the Museum Institute and a senior scholar at the First Amendment Center. He writes and speaks extensively on religious liberty and religion in American public life. He's best known for his work on First Amendment issues in public schools. Over the past two decades, he has been the principal organizer and drafter of consensus guidelines on religious liberty in schools, endorsed by a broad range of educational, of religious and educational organizations. In January 2003, of these guides were distributed by the US Department of Education to every single public school in the nation. He's the author or co-author of six different books, including First Freedoms, a documentary history of First Amendment rights in America, and Religion in American Public Life. His column, Inside the First Amendment, appears in newspapers nationwide. He's a founding board member of the Character Education Partnership and serves on the steering committee of the Campaign for the Civic Mission of Schools and the American Bar Association Advisory Commission on Public Education. He chairs the Committee on Religious Liberty of the National Council of Churches. He's widely quoted in news magazines and major newspapers. Haynes is also a frequent guest on television and radio. He's been profiled in the Wall Street Journal and on ABC's Evening News. In 2008, he received the Virginia First Freedom Award from the Council for America's First Freedom. He holds a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School and a doctorate from Emory, Emory University. And uh, you all know Neil, Neil well, but he is the director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. After teaching high school English for two years and covering education and municipal government as a freelance journalist in suburban New Jersey, McCluskey worked as a policy analyst at the Center for Education Reform before joining Cato. He's the author of the books Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education, and his writings have appeared in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Forbes, and the Washington Examiner. McCluskey also created and maintains Cato's Public Schooling Battle Map, a database and interactive map of values and identity-based conflicts in the nation's public schools. He holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, where he double majored in government and English. And he has a master's degree in political science from Rutgers, as well as a PhD in public, sorry, sorry, public policy from George Mason University. So that does it for the bios. Uh, the format this morning for at least this panel is going to be roughly 10 minutes from speakers. They've all promised to uh, stay within that time limit. And uh, after that, after roughly 10 minutes per speaker, we'll have about 10 minutes of moderated Q&A, uh, followed by that should leave about 20 minutes for audience questions and answers. Uh, so with that, we will get started with Charles. The last time I spoke at a Cato event, I believe was 20 years ago in the uh, auditorium downstairs, to celebrate Cato's publication of my report on educational freedom in Eastern Europe. It was commissioned by the first Bush administration and then suppressed by the incoming Clinton administration. I had the pleasure of giving copies of that Cato book recently on my trips to Ukraine to advise on, on reforming their educational system to promote freedom. I mention that study because of its two primary themes, how government can misuse popular schooling to seek to impose uniformity and obedience, and the way in which many families, when given a chance, will seek to create or choose schools for their children 
reflecting their deepest convictions. My report documented how such initiatives were a primary expression of new freedoms as communist regimes fell. This made it unwelcome to the American education establishment and its allies. The present conference has been called because of a widespread perception that religious liberty is under threat in the United States, and perhaps most crucially, in education. There are four aspects of religious liberty essential to this discussion. First, religious liberty protects what is precious to human beings at the most fundamental level. More than identities based on race, ethnicity, gender, or political views, religious convictions go all the way down, shaping how the believer understands the world and the requirements of a flourishing life, what is worth living for and perhaps what is worth dying for. A wise polity protects educational religious liberty, not only to respect the convictions of citizens, but for the sake of domestic tranquility. Second, meaningful religious liberty is not, in most cases, a private individualistic affair. With rare exceptions, religious convictions are acquired and supported communally and expressed in communal acts of worship, fellowship, and service. Religious liberty protects the right of voluntary associations to organize and define themselves. The post-war development of international norms for freedom in a variety of spheres of life owes much to the concept of personalism, which emphasizes the dignity of the human person in relation to other persons. Religious liberty must recognize the social dimension of human beings, not as solitary individuals, but in conjunction with other human beings. Third, the right to seek, on, the right to, seek to pass on one's religious conviction, especially to children, is a fundamental aspect of religious liberty. Jack Coons remind us that the right to form families and to determine the scope of their children's practical liberty is for most men and women the primary occasion for choice and responsibility. One does not have to be rich or well-placed to experience the family. The opportunity over a span of 15 or 20 years to attempt the transmission of one's deepest values to a beloved child provides a unique arena for the creative impulse. Here is the communication of ideas in their most elemental form. Parental expression, Coons concludes, is an activity with profound First Amendment implications. And finally, Flourishing religious liberty is a guardian for other freedoms. Because as Peter Berger has written, it posits the ultimate limit on the power of the state. The status of religious liberty in a society is a very good measure of the general condition of rights and liberties in that society. This is because religion relativizes, puts in their proper place all the realities of the world, including all institutions. The state that guarantees religious liberty does more than acknowledge yet another human right. It acknowledges, perhaps without knowing it, that the state's own power is less than ultimate. Much then 
is at stake in how the religious freedom rights of individuals, of faith-based religious associations, and of parents are protected. After decades as a state government official, and by the way, one who sent all seven of my own children to the Boston Public Schools, and more decades since then as an educational policy consultant in many countries, I've become convinced that the only way that these rights can be protected in the educational system is through structural pluralism, through encouraging a rich variety of schools with distinctive educational missions. Americans differ too widely in their faith-based convictions about the nature of a worthy human life and about the possibility of authoritative moral standards to achieve a satisfactory lowest common denominator education. As Jonathan Zimmerman has shown in, in fascinating detail, no simple compromise could solve the problem of sex education, which touched upon the deepest religious and philosophical rifts. But the issue is not simply about how to deal with questions of sexuality or with enriching the history and social studies curriculum to reflect religious as well as ethnic and gender diversity. The importance of structural pluralism in education is not as a way to avoid such issues, but rather as the only way in a diverse society to provide each child with a coherent educational setting based on a shared worldview that the child's parents can support wholeheartedly. Simply removing offensive elements of the curriculum is not enough to satisfy parents with strong convictions about the education of their children. When public schools in the 19th century removed anti-Catholic textbooks, that did not prevent the creation of distinctively Catholic schools. More recently, the prohibition of teacher-led prayer in public schools was only a symbolic rallying point uh, reflecting a much deeper uh, unease with developments in the wider culture that led to the development of thousands of evangelical schools. And the, uh, the lack of anti-Semitic slurs in the curriculum has not prevented uh, the formation in recent years of hundreds and hundreds of new Jewish day schools. There are many who deplore, who have always deplored such alternatives as I showed in the Myth of the Common School a quarter century ago. They charged that children can learn to be good Americans only through attending public schools, segregated as these are by race and class. Such warnings persist despite massive research evidence to the contrary. My own research team has been interviewing in Islamic high schools across the United States for the past several years. We found that parents and students alike are looking for something that they have not found in local public schools. They're not avoiding the schools because of anti-Islamic elements in the schools. They're looking for something else. Youth told us again and again that they appreciate the freedom to have frank discussions on the basis of shared conviction in a way they had not, not found possible in the public schools they previously attended. I found it plausible that faith-based schools 
can provide a better standpoint in many cases for critical engagement with the dominant culture than can a public school with its tolerance of almost everything and parallel belief in almost nothing, swamped by that culture. To sum up, individual religious freedom is essential, but it, it needs to be sustained by the freedom of voluntary associations, by communities of common purpose with a shared understanding of the nature of a flourishing human life. This is particularly true in education. It is schools with a distinctive character that best form the character of their students. The freedom to choose a school for one's child is meaningless if all schools are forced into a bland uniformity. Such bland uniformity, based on what I call defensive teaching, is the typical response of American public schools to the objections of parents. I'm not for a moment suggesting that recent efforts which we'll, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about, to present the historical and sociological role of religion fairly and objectively in public schools are unimportant. They are required by intellectual honesty and fairness. But we need to be clear that such curriculum enrichments will not satisfy the demands of those parents, and there are millions of them, who want a school for their children permeated through and through by distinctive worldview an understanding of the nature and requirements of a flourishing human life. Oddly enough, for a country so fond of invoking freedom and with an economy based on choice, the United States is a laggard among Western democracies in government support for such choices. In a dozen European countries, in Canada, in Australia, public policies provide public funding for parent choice of faith-based schools in a way that only here and there is beginning to happen in the United States. Respect for religious liberty requires that structural pluralism become the norm in education. Uh. Well, I, I want to thank Neil McCluskey and, and uh, Cato for inviting me uh, to join this distinguished uh, group of gentlemen. And I use my term advisedly. Apparently, to speak at Cato, you have to be a dude. Um, uh, um, also, just picking up on what Charles Glenn said, I know we're talking about religion and, and, and education and uh, formal education schools. But obviously, uh, the family is the primary educator, always has been, always will be. And in that vein, I'm delighted to welcome my parents here. I understand that most grown men aren't chaperoned at events like this by their parents. <laughs> but I, I'm a little different in that way. Um, I, I, this is, this is going to be sobering. I, 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 um, I'm a historian, and we're taught not to go to yesterday's news, but it was impossible for me not to. And I think that's the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room, I think, for this discussion is for the first time since the 1880s, we have a presumptive presidential candidate who wants to exclude an entire group of human beings from the United States. Okay, that's a fact. I mean, the 1880s was the Asian Exclusion Act. In 1925, of course, we did restrict different groups based on race, but we didn't actually bar them. Um, uh, this is the first time. Um, it is extremely sobering. And for those of you who think it's only Trump supporters, go to Alan Abramowitz's piece 
in the New York Review of Books of last, uh, um, last week. It's really, really important that you do this. Because it turns out of Republican voters in the primary, 75% support a blanket ban on Muslims coming to the United States. It is higher. It's in the 80s for Trump supporters. But for his opponents, when they were in the, in the race, it was in the 60s. So please, don't kid yourself that this is only about people who voted for Donald Trump. That's false. I wish it were true, um, uh, but it's false. Okay. Um, let's also remember that this presumptive nominee continues to make allusions about the alleged Muslim background of the President of the United States, who has never at any point said the following. It turns out I'm not Muslim, but what if I was? We got to remember what isn't said. Nobody in his administration has said that because they can't. Okay? So I would argue as an educator, all of these events really do show a failure of education. I'm a historian, so people will try to explain all of this in 100 and 200 years. And what we historians do is we imagine how they'll do so. Obviously, they'll talk about 9-11 and the rise of global terrorism, um, especially within Islamic communities, right? But they will also point to a failure of education. They'll point to a profound ignorance about education in the United States, not just about Islam, but about formal education. There are people on this panel who have written much more about this than I have. Um, but Americans are profoundly ignorant about the most basic aspects of formal religion. Um, why is that? I would argue historically, in part, it has to do with the way since the 1960s we've constructed this ideal of diversity in the United States, and especially the way that we've taught it, and I would argue the way we've taught controversial questions in general. Diversity in education, that is the quest to teach about the range of human differences in America and in the world, doesn't include religion in this country. We have Black History Month, we have Women's History Month, right? Now we have Gay History Month, right? There is no Catholic month. There is no Islamic week. Um, if there was, I think you'd hear a lot of objections about you know, people saying that this threatens the liberty of their parent, uh, of, of their kids and their families. Um, I want to be absolutely clear here, right? If schools use Catholic History Week to try to engage in group prayer, try to indoctrinate people into Catholicism, of course it would threaten liberty, and of course I would object to it. Um, but here's the real problem, I think, in public education right now. Um, I, and I am limiting myself now to public schools, unlike uh, Charles Glenn. Um, I would say that, frankly, the way we teach other aspects of diversity, indeed of history, represents its own kind of quasi-religious indoctrination. That we celebrate people instead of actually teaching about them and instead of actually engaging our kids in the really hard questions about it. Friends, all day today, we're going to be debating really, really tough questions about unity and diversity, about personal and group liberty. How many of those questions are engaged in a deep way in our public schools? I would say, and I have a book coming out this, about this in the spring, it's extremely rare. Okay, um, You go into American classrooms and you try to see how many truly controversial questions are explored 
and the degree to which they are explored, it's minimal. Okay, how did this come about? Um, I wrote a book about this a number of years ago, and very briefly, what the book argued is that um, once upon a time, what our schools taught was just about white men, just like this panel, by the way. All right. Um, uh, and uh, what happened is the books diversified. If anybody tells you that what we teach about in our public schools is only white men, they just haven't looked at a textbook, right? This is why the textbooks are like 800 pages long, and the middle school kids are getting back problems, you know, hauling them around. Okay, you want your Kazaki Americans? There's like a sidebar about them, right? And the great things that Kazaki Americans have done. Um, but that's the story I tell in the book. We diversified our curriculum, but we kept that celebrate part. The job of the schools is not to celebrate Americans or any, any group of Americans. It's to teach people about them and to help people make up their own minds. Um, what we did was we diversified the textbook, right? But the title of the textbook is the same, right? Quest for Liberty, Rise of the American Nation. Have you ever noticed the physics textbook is not called Triumph of the Atom? <laughs> right? Only the history textbook is called that. Um, and so what's the theme? We're awesome. We're a more diverse we now, right, which is great. But each component group is awesome. Um, there's a huge contradiction in all of this, friends. Quest for liberty, right? We celebrate America as a land of individual liberty, and then we tell each individual what to think. That's a massive contradiction instead of, again, engaging them in these really hard questions. There are many reasons for this. Okay, some of them have to do with the accountability movement, without a doubt, okay, which encourages a kind of rote instruction, especially in poor communities. Um, some of it has to do with the way we prepare teachers, some of whom, alas, don't themselves have the kind of knowledge and background to engage in these kinds of questions. Some of it has to do with courts and the way that the courts have restricted what teachers can say and do. Again, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting we should start celebrating Catholics or Muslims. I'm taking issue with the entire metaphor of celebration, which isn't or shouldn't be the goal of school. Um, the only defensible goal, the only one consistent with individual liberty is to teach people about this diversity, including our religious diversity, so they can grapple with these hard questions. How much diversity do we want? How much unity? Um, uh, how will we teach people to be citizens, okay, if we don't engage them in these questions when they're young? Um, it's not an easy thing to do. Okay, if there's a gay kid in the class, how do you debate same-sex marriage or the religious liberty questions about, you know, florists that don't want to, you know, service gay weddings? Um, I think you can, but I think it requires teachers with extraordinary knowledge about diversity, including religious diversity. What are the faith traditions that object to gay marriage? Why do they object? Um, so many of our most profound public issues, including what happened yesterday, okay, or over the weekend, are in many ways at root religious ones. Our future citizens will not be able to address those questions in a coherent way unless our schools do. Um, uh, so, you know, um, I was in Manhattan on 9-11. Um, uh, I was actually walking through Washington Square. I was walking north towards the arch, and this um, homeless guy panhandles me. 
And I sort of did the embarrassed sort of brush and weave, sorry, I can't. And I hear him behind me, he says, World Trade Center on fire. I didn't turn around. And I'm not proud of that. And it wasn't until I got to the office um, that uh, I found out it was. And I watched the buildings come down, and obviously school was canceled for the week, and I, I, I lived with my grandmother in New York, astonishingly, who at the time was in her late 90s. And I spent the rest of the day uh, watching TV. And um, uh, what the TV said were a couple things. Um, the TV said we're all New Yorkers now. <laughs> Not. <laughs> that lasted about a week, all right? Um, and then it said everything has changed. Everything has changed. Everything's going to be different now. As far as I'm concerned, with respect to the issues we're talking about today, nothing changed, and nothing will, until citizens and parents of every mind resolve to let our kids make up their own. Thanks a lot. Hard to come third after that, but <laughs> I'm going to give it a go. I um, am grateful for the opportunity to be here. I come from the front lines of this, and so we'll see what that adds to the conversation. But I'm grateful to to Neil for inviting me and for the Cato Institute for having me. Um, the, yeah, and I also uh, am a bit preoccupied with what happened in Orlando, as I know we all are. Uh, I think that... We have to stop and think carefully about what kind of nation we are, not just for the reasons that have already been articulated, but because when you have people uh, targeted, uh, LGBT people in this case, um, we have to step back and think what kind of climate have we all helped either uh, bring about or encourage in our country, a climate of fear and tolerance that leads to or, or helps to create hate and violence. Uh, and the demonizing of Muslims, which, you know, there are folks who are going to take every opportunity to do in this country. Uh, it's been going on for some years. It is uh, very dangerous, and it has caused tremendous harm in our country, and it's one of the great religious liberty challenges of our time. So that's what I'm thinking about, but uh, I think it does come back to what we're doing in our schools. And I'm going to focus on my experience of what we're doing in our schools over, God help me, the last 25 to 30 years. <laughs> uh, but let me start with a strong conviction that I have and that has motivated me to do what I do. And that conviction is that religion and religious liberty, uh, getting that right in public education, I believe is critical to the future of the American experiment in democratic freedom. So that's why I've worked for the last 25 years and more to help local districts move from battleground to common ground on conflicts over the role of religion in schools. And on a national level, I've joined with many educational, religious, and civil liberties groups, some are represented in the room today, uh, to develop consensus guidelines. I think we've done a total of 10 to date on, the, on a range of religion and schools issues that uh, have long divided Americans. Now, of course, religious consensus in the United States is neither possible nor desirable, but a shared understanding of how to apply First Amendment principles and current law in public schools is not only possible, but also essential for the health of our republic. 
properly understood, in my view, religious liberty principles, First Amendment principles, provide the civic framework within which we are able to understand one another, negotiate differences, and when possible, and where possible, find common ground. So by teaching and modeling the rights and responsibilities that, that flow from the First Amendment, schools can serve as laboratories for democracy and freedom, in my view, places where people of all faiths and none learn to treat one another with fairness and respect, one of the few places in our society where that's possible if we do it right. But as this audience knows well, our difficult history of getting religion wrong in public education has created a widespread confusion and controversy concerning the constitutional role of religion in public schools. When I first began working uh, with schools on these issues in the late 1980s, many schools that I visited were essentially religion-free zones, or resembled them, places where religion was excluded and, and a kind of distorted view of separation of church and state. And there were other schools where I spent time, especially in the South, which continued to promote one religion over others, clinging to the vestiges of a bygone era. Now, both of these approaches, in my view, uh, to religion and public education were then and are now unjust and, in many cases, unconstitutional. More than 25 years later, however, I would argue that many public school officials are indeed working toward getting religion and religious liberty right. As a result, there is more study about religions and more student religious expression in public schools today than at any time in many decades. Religion is coming into the public schools, but I would say mostly through the First Amendment door. Now, many factors have contributed to this change including court decisions, litigation, advocacy groups on all sides. But I'm just going to highlight two quickly, two developments that I think played an especially important role. One was the passage of the Equal Access Act in 1984 and the subsequent US Supreme Court decision upholding the constitutionality of the act. Now, that's led to formation of hundreds, if not thousands, of student-initiated, student-led religious clubs in secondary schools throughout the country. Now, although the implementation of the Equal Access Act has not been without controversy, even most early critics now agree that it has gener generally worked to give students appropriate opportunities to express their faith in public school and schools while simultaneously ensuring that school officials don't take sides in religion. Second, <clears throat> over the past two decades, broad coalitions of religious civil liberties and educational organizations have issued a series of common ground statements, what I mentioned earlier, on the constitutional and educational role of religion in public schools. The first agreements, religion in the curriculum and religious holidays in the late 1980s, early 1990s, were followed by a series of additional common ground documents agreed to over the next two decades including a joint statement of current law, public schools and religious communities, the Bible in public schools, and so forth. In 2003, during the George W. Bush administration, the US Department of Education guidelines were updated and revised to comply with the provision of the No Child Left Behind Act that directed the DOA to put out new guidance on constitutionally protected prayer in public schools, what they called it. Now, although a few provisions of that guidance were and remain controversial, most of the guidance tracks the earlier agreements. 
Well, as a result of the consensus articulated in these common ground documents and the DOE guidance, educators actually now have a safe harbor for getting religion right if they choose to do so. When implemented, schools are able to go beyond the failed policies and practices of our past that either imposed religion or banished religion and create what I would call a First Amendment public school, a school that neither inculcates nor inhibits religion, but treats religion and religious conviction with fairness and respect. Now, although areas of disagreement remain, we now have broad consensus that under current law, students have the right to pray alone or in groups as long as they don't disrupt the school or interfere with the rights of others, share their faith with others, read their scriptures, express their personal religious views in class or as part of a written assignment or activity, as long as the speech is relevant to the discussion, of course, and meets the academic requirements, distribute religious literature in school, subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, form student religious clubs, as I've already said, if the school allows other extracurricular clubs. We also agree that study about religions is not only constitutional, it is an essential part of a good education. Of course, this means that public schools must teach about religion objectively or neutrally. Their purpose must be to educate students about a variety of religious traditions, not to indoctrinate them for or against any religion. Study about religions has come a long way since the first consensus statement in the late 1980s. State social studies standards, for example, are now fairly generous to religion in stark contrast to the virtual silence about religion in state curriculum frameworks in the 1980s. As a result, many history textbooks have expanded treatment of religions beyond the bare mention of religion of earlier editions. Now, despite these improvements, much of the public school curriculum beyond modest inclusion in history and literature continues to fall short of what I would consider serious study of religion. As I've argued elsewhere, <clears throat> public education's failure to take religion seriously in the curriculum is hardly neutral or fair under the First Amendment. In my view, genuine neutrality under the Establishment Clause would mean exposing students to religious as well as secular ways of understanding the world. So a curriculum that largely ignores religion or religious worldviews sends a message to students that religion is irrelevant in the search for truth. But serious treatment of religion in the curriculum, and I think we're moving closer, will necessitate significant reforms to ensure that teachers have sound academic resources for teaching about religion and receive adequate preparation in religious studies as it relates to the subject they teach. Well, although common ground achieved over the last two decades has made a significant difference in my view in how many public schools address religion, Clearly much work needs to be done, remains to be done. Far too many school districts continue to muddle along with outdated policies or no policies at all that leave them vulnerable to conflicts and litigation. <clears throat> Far too many school officials are afraid to fully implement the, this consensus I've described, even when they're encouraged to do so by the US Department of Education or state policies and legislation. And far too many teachers remain unprepared or unwilling to tackle teaching about religions, whatever the standards or textbooks require. <clears throat> Moreover, obviously, common ground on some issues does not necessarily guarantee common ground on all issues. 
culture war differences still spark fights and lawsuits in many communities and probably will continue to do so. So without going into detail on all of that, uh, we can talk about some of those. I will just mention four of the most contentious areas of disagreement that we're still working to resolve. These will be familiar to you, but I'll mention them. Religious and ideological clashes over issues involving sexual orientation and gender identity. Controversy surrounding Bible electives that fail to meet academic and constitutional standards. Conflicts over when and where to draw the line on student religious expression, especially at school-sponsored events. And of course, the ongoing fight over the teaching of evolution. So let me conclude by saying that despite these remaining areas of disagreement, which are significant, consensus on many key religion in schools issues that have long divided Americans, I believe creates an historic opportunity to get religion right, or at least close to right, in public education. And the single most important step that any school district can take is to proactively develop sound policies and practices with the full participation of parents and other members of the school community that reflect the constitutional safe harbor provided by the national agreements and current law on religious freedom in schools. After more than 25 years uh, working on these issues, mediating in all, uh, these conflicts in local communities around the country, I can say with confidence that school districts with sound First Amendment policies and practices are much less likely to experience conflicts and lawsuits over issues related to religion in public schools. And if American schools take this opportunity provided by the First Amendment consensus, a common vision for the common good may yet be realized in public education and in our nation as we undertake the challenging task of forging one nation out of many peoples of many faiths in the 21st century. Thank you very much. Well, I just want to start by reiterating that, that it, I've really enjoyed actually everything that panelists have had to say. I think that this has been a great discussion so far. There has been some question about the diversity of the panel. And I would just note, we are diverse if we're all different heights. Um, and I checked that out in the green room. And I didn't know it, but we have one deacon on the panel. So there is some diversity to be found here. Uh, what I'm going to try and do is drive home really just two main points. One, that public schooling inherently creates religious conflicts in a pluralist society. Uh, and that public schooling is unavoidably discriminatory. Uh, historically, uh, as has been discussed already to some extent, obviously public schooling has been a flashpoint for a fair number of religious conflicts. I mean, most people tend to think of Catholic and Protestant conflicts historically, uh, but as actually Charles has written uh, probably many times, uh, there was also at the beginning of public schooling in Massachusetts conflicts between kind of more or less orthodox Protestants about what the two schools would teach. And of course, we continue to have debates and conflicts among people who think that religion has an important or essential role in education, and those who think it should at least have no official place within the public schools for which everyone pays. 
Um, today, so even with religion removed from, again, any official place in public schooling, religious conflicts abound. As uh, Jason mentioned in uh, my bio, because I put it in my bio to make sure he mentioned it, uh, Cato runs something called the public schooling battle map. It's also, that's sort of the battle map is the way the public reaches the database that's underneath it. It currently includes uh, about 1,500 values and identity-based public schooling conflicts. Um, and it contains over 250 of those are explicitly and first and foremost about religion. Now I should say, there's this is not supposed to be something that is a comprehensive collection of every values or identity-based conflict that happens in American education. These are the ones that I can find on Google Alerts that are in the major media. There's probably a whole lot that happens that I don't know about. So this is just to give you a sense of the conflicts that are happening. I should also say that when I say 250 predominantly religion-based uh, conflicts, we have all sorts of other conflicts that have a religious component often, but in our categorization system, religion isn't first and foremost. So many freedom of expression conflicts are often connected to religion. Can you wear, if you're Native American and it's important to your religion, can you have your hair in a certain way is one we've actually seen pop up many times at graduations and things like that. Just one example. Um, teaching of human origins, as we've discussed, has for a very long time been maybe the hottest of these flashpoints, although we put that actually gets its own category because it has been so consistent and so time-honored. Um, and then if you hear about book banning, I like to use the term banning in quotes, by the way, because the book banning controversies are not often about saying you may not access the book. It's a decision. Is the school or the, gonna, or the district going to buy a book and put it in the library or even more directly put it on a reading list or are they not? And if it does get there, do they keep it? That's not really banning, but it is a big values-driven and sometimes religiously-driven conflict in different places. All of these then often have connections to religion. So that 250 religious conflicts is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And it's also important to note that many of these battles happen not at the district level, but at the state level. And then when we talk about bathroom access and locker room access, that's now a federal issue. So nobody um, is out of the reach of the bombs and the bullets that are fired in these religious and education connected conflicts. Often everybody is part of it, even if you live in a district that isn't having these debates. So some examples, I've already given a few, but yes, bathroom access, locker room access can have a religious component. Uh, we again classify this actually on a map other than religion, but of course there are religions who say, look, modesty, uh, separation between the sexes is important. It's very important. And so they can have religious exceptions, religious exceptions or, or objections to these rules are not the only kind, but they are one of them. School calendars, we've seen lots of debates about, well, who's, which religions get their holidays off from school and which don't. It's been a hotly debated topic in New York City, Montgomery County, Maryland, Hillsborough County, Hillsborough County Florida, among other places. Of course, the origins and the development of life, we've known about that one since at least the Scopes Monkey Trial going back to the 1920s. And then there is how religion is taught. And it's not just how districts and states handle the teaching of the Bible, which of course is important, that's a big one. But we often, and it's not just about Christianity, we often go beyond debates about Christianity. Uh, there have been fights over the appropriateness of yoga in schools, uh, whether that has a religious component and therefore is government uh, imposing religion on students. We've seen battles about that in California and New Mexico. 
And we, uh, about 10 years ago, there was an eruption of discontent by Hindus in California over their treatment, the treatment of their religion, and their culture in uh, a state-approved history textbook. So this, these are many myriad issues that, and different groups that are caught up in it. So clearly, religion is still an issue in many public schools. But I think perhaps deeper than talking about the conflicts, which are very important because public schools are supposed to have a unifying effect, and they may actually have a divisive effect if we're forced to fight over things like this. But more than that, it's the inherent inequality often in public schooling because public schooling tends to be a zero-sum game. If one side gets what they want, the other side has to lose. And again, remember, everybody, at the very least, has to pay for the public schools. So if one side thinks creationism should be taught and the other does not, one side must lose. If one group thinks the book Bless Me Ultima, which is one of the often challenged books, should be on the 11th grade curriculum and someone else doesn't, one side has to lose. And if one group thinks religion is inherent to education and the other does not, again, one side has to lose. Um, and of course, the flip side is it should be unacceptable for public schools, which are government schools. Now, when I say government schools, people say, well, that's pejorative. You're just trying to, to in some way, sort of cheap stop the public schools. But this is crucial to understand they are government schools. And your government is not supposed to be able to discriminate for or against you. So I don't use government schools to be pejorative. I say it because it's a critical point to understand. But we don't want the public schools, the government schools, to impose religion on anyone. Clearly, that would be establishment of religion. So too, though, it should be unacceptable to prohibit religion, especially singling out religion as something that can't be in the public schools. That's religious inequality, it seems to me, under the law. So one system of government schools just can't serve all people equally. The good news is that, that you can have a public provision of funding of education coupled with freedom for families and educators, kind of what Milton Friedman wanted, which is he said, look, in education, separate the funding from the provision of the schools. There can be public funding, but you don't want the government also providing the schools. That would allow both public education and freedom. So we tend to think about vouchers. That's probably what first comes to most people's mind when you think about school choice. But there's a very serious and I think accurate, or at least important, objection to this. And people say, look, I don't want my tax dollars going to a school that teaches X, Y, or Z. And I think that that's a reasonable objection and concern. But I also think it's much better within the whole system. There's far less coercion, far less compulsion. If you give choice to all the consumers of education, rather than you have a winner-takes-all system. So if everybody gets to choose what they want, you have a much more uh, freedom within the whole system as opposed to saying, look, 51% of us, or maybe 45% of us, maybe a powerful minority says, we want X taught, and everyone else has to accept that. That seems to be much less freedom, much more coercion than saying, let's let everybody in this pluralist society choose schools that comport with their values. But that said, again, this is a legitimate concern, I think, about vouchers. And the good news is there are ways to add even more freedom to the system. Scholarship tax credits or tax credit funded education savings accounts, more freedom in that, look, you choose whether or not you want to donate to a scholarship granting organization. And depending on how the law is written, you choose to which organization you want to donate. So you can choose. Do you want to donate to a diocesan school system? Do you want to donate to a system of Montessori schools? That's your choice. 
far less compulsion in that than even with vouchers. Um, what about the public good aspect of this? And this is important, and this is what a lot of people think that public schooling is about. Uh, it, we're trying to shape the next generation of people. And two uh, very important public good concerns are, one, do we want to avoid dangerous teachings, un-American teachings, whatever that means? And do we want to make sure that everybody learns civics, learns you know, that their role is a voter and that there's a separation of power in government, things like that? And again, these are very legitimate concerns that people won't learn these things. But I, I think they may be, uh, they at least shouldn't be impediments to more choice. So for dangerous teachings, you know, whether or not you can teach children that you should kill certain groups or overthrow the government, it's my understanding that laws already prohibit such things. Now, the good news is there are a lot of lawyers in the room I know because I helped to put together this conference. And so if I'm wrong about that, certainly lawyers can correct that. But as I understand, that's already illegal. As far as civics goes, uh, it sounds, I think, very nice, and it's certainly understandable to say, look, we have to make sure all Americans, the next generation, knows what America's about. It's about freedom and that we understand we should vote and we should serve on juries and things like that. But research actually suggests that chosen schools are better at inculcating civic knowledge and attitudes, such as volunteering in your community, than traditional public schools. And I think one possible reason actually goes to what Jonathan talked about. You know, questions about civics, once you get beyond what sounds like nice rhetoric in which we like freedom and equality and things like that, when you talk about the specifics can get very contentious. What is the role of the federal government? What do we mean when we talk about separation of power? Should the public school say everybody needs to do community service in order to graduate? These become dicey questions and different people with different values have different answers about that. So what we may be seeing in civics is what has actually been documented in biology classes and, and what you talked about, which is that public schools tend to gloss over anything that's controversial. And I think a large part of that is because they don't want controversy. They don't want conflict. They don't want parents coming to the principal and saying, I absolutely object to what you did, and going to the school district and saying, this is unacceptable. So the easiest thing is to, we just won't talk about the things that are controversial. I should also say that's probably not the only answer. I do think that we've seen education move to an obsession with test scores and reading and math scores in particular. And that, I think, has pushed out things like civics to some extent and social studies. But I don't think that's the main reason we see private schools, actually chosen schools, doing a better job of teaching these things. And this has been documented in a lot of research. And I think it's because chosen, especially private schools, involve bringing people voluntarily together. And a school can then have a coherent, rigorous set of norms and values and content that people agree to when they go to that school. So you don't have to worry, we have to serve everybody, and therefore we have to go with sort of lowest common denominator. We can have sort of firm teachings because people have chosen this. Of course, people also tend to want to get along with others. We succeed in life when we speak the same language, when we share norms, when we can do business with people who are different than we are. So one of the other big fears, maybe the biggest of school choices, will become balkanized. That people will go off with all their own little groups and will not interact. But I think historically we've seen that's not the case. And that it's been driven by self-interest. People say, look, if I want to succeed in this country, I do need to share the norms some shared cultural understanding, the language, in order to succeed. 
So I think ultimately our public schooling system has never and really could never treat religious and non-religious people or just people of different religions equally. The, the public schooling system has produced, or at least exacerbated, repeated conflict. But more importantly, it is fundamentally at odds with American ideals. And I think only choice, only freedom in education can also give true equality. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So first, we will have a couple of uh, moderator Q&As. And these are just uh, open questions that I kind of uh, thought of some, or one was kind of premeditated that I thought of beforehand, and one is kind of uh, thought up while we were just sitting right there. But first, I want to ask about this idea of Blaine amendments. And there's a, uh, an op-ed that was in the handouts on the table outside about Blaine amendments that Neil actually wrote. Um, and, and if you're unfamiliar, Blaine amendments specify that a state government uh, cannot give public funds to religious purposes or religious schools usually. Uh, there was an attempt to get such an amendment uh, added to the U.S. Constitution, but that narrowly failed. Uh, so these amendments started as an anti-Catholic idea. And I, I think we would all agree that, uh, you know, specifically uh, discriminating against Catholics in that matter was wrong at the time back in the 1800s. Uh, but I want to ask, is the principle behind the Blaine Amendments justified? Uh, because it would be impossible for a state government or the federal government to give equally uh, equal funds to every single different religion. But at the same time, the First Amendment doesn't say you can't give any funds to religion, it just says you can't uh, establish a state religion. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm, I'm expert witness in, in a number of of Blaine Amendment cases. One of them is on its way to the Supreme Court right now, the Colorado case. Um, and uh, the argument we made in those, uh, in those cases was that there is a fundamental liberty right of parents to make decisions, and that the Blaine Amendments were intended to single out a particular group of parents, that is Catholic parents, to be unable to make that choice at a time when in Colorado, in New Hampshire, another place where we actually won in the Blaine case, in, in, in several of the other states, the, um, uh, the state at that point explicitly was saying that the uh, public schools were to teach the Protestant religion, were to have uh, daily uh, you know, reading of of the Protestant version of the Bible and all the rest. In other words, that the uh, Blaine Amendments were a liberty restriction and were in violation of the 14th Amendment equal protection clauses. And I, I think that's very convincing, obviously, or I wouldn't agree to, to be a witness in those cases. You know, the only thing I'd add, I think Charles is right about the history here, but I would caution us against what my students have learned to call the fallacy of poisoned origins. If Charles Glenn wants to argue that the Blaine Amendments in the 1870s were profoundly anti-Catholic in their motivation, he's absolutely right. Okay, But that doesn't necessarily mean they are today or that they're invalid. So the analogy I often give has to do with uh, the birth control movement. Um, I, um, Margaret Sanger, who was the foremother of the birth control movement, made a, a eugenic argument for birth control. Her famous, her famous argument was, more children from the fit, less from the unfit. That is the goal of birth control. 
right? There was this is during the 1920s, and there was this enormous fear that you know white people were committing race suicide because all these other non-white people were. Uh, making lots of babies, right, and we want to prevent them from doing that. That's all true, just like the anti-Catholic dimension of the Blaine Amendment is true. But it does not invalidate the idea of birth control or public funding of it, right? What it should force us to do instead is to scrutinize ourselves and our rhetoric to see the degree to which, all right, we have maintained or held on to some of these odious dimensions. Uh, and I'll just add a word here. I'm not an expert on that history, but I would recommend Steve Green's great book on looking at that history, I think, through fresh eyes. Uh, I think his book called The Second Disestablishment. But it's much more complex than is usually presented. There are other roots of the conviction that funding, state funding for religion uh, violates conscience, uh, and there should be a very strict prohibition on it. Uh, it's not only the, uh, the Blaine uh, amendments or the Blaine argument. So that's one thing to say it's a complex story. The other thing is I think the de facto establishment of Protestantism in public schools was, of course, a part and parcel of, of how we were evolving at that time and actually uh, was considered a great achievement of, of, of bringing together tr tremendous diversity among Protestants uh, at the time to, to even agree on that. But So I, I think that is a difficult period of, uh, to, to sort of, as John said, just to say, well, this is the only way to look at it. But I think, or to think today that, that it's poisoned by that history, I do think it was, it, today we would say, uh, unjust and unconstitutional. Uh, but... Uh, at the same time, I think we need to think today about the, the challenge of, of uh, allowing government money to go toward religion, uh, and especially the challenge to religion and what that will do to the autonomy of religious conviction and religious institutions. Uh, I think I'm very deeply concerned about that, and I think that's something that uh, in our time we need to think very carefully about. Well, we, we might ask why also other democracies. I mean, Australia funds Catholic schools, uh, Canada and Ontario, the Catholic schools are government-funded. In all the countries of Western Europe, the government funds faith-based schools. Now, I don't think any of those countries are anti-democratic or, or uh, discriminatory. It's just they recognize the fundamental right of parents to be able to control the education of their children, a right which is expressed in the various international covenants uh, which uh, shape the way we think about human rights. And just another historic irony, and you know historians, love, we love our ironies, right? I mean, you think about kind of the, the, the debate and the rhetoric surrounding the term American exceptionalism, and you find in recent years it's more likely been conservatives who have been holding on to that term and liberals saying, no, we're not exceptional, we shouldn't be, right? I mean, look how Europe has banned, uh, you know, the death penalty, right? Okay, and, you know, uh, uh, look at their social welfare state. We should be imitating other countries. But on the issues that Charles and I are talking about, it's quite the inverse, Right? Um, uh, it's liberals saying we should be exceptional, right? We have this absolute separation of church and state, which will always bar or should always bar the government from subsidizing religion in any way, right? Uh, we have to be exceptional, and it's often people who are conservative saying, no, look at Holland, look at Australia. So I think that's a really interesting irony that we have to figure out. Yeah, yeah I think that for the present day, the real problem again is that Blaine amendments essentially discriminate against religion. And you can actually go back, I'm sort of 
channeling stuff that you've written here, but um, you can go back and so Horace Mann said, look, let's have uh, sort of a Protestantism that everybody can accept. And what some people object to said, well, you've essentially then made these Unitarian schools. You're Unitarian, so that works for you, but not for us. And so you have a schooling system now where you say, look, if you're non-religious, you're atheist, you're agnostic, you just don't think it's important education, this works for you, but not for religious people. And so I think the problem with the Blaine Amendment now, or Blaine Amendments, is that they essentially force religious people to be kind of second-class citizens, say, you'll pay for these schools that don't work for you, but work for someone else. And then if you want the education that you think is best for your kids, you'll, play, you'll pay again. And I think but, that's Neil, religious people are themselves divided on this question, right? I mean, not all religious or devout Americans agree with the statement you just made. Well, that's true. But there are religious people who say, why should I have to pay twice? And, of course, what we're trying to do is protect even the smallest minority in this country so that they're not treated as second class. We could debate. I think that's crucial. We could debate Blaine Amendments all day, and that's a fun topic, and I would love to, but let's... You, uh, you brought it up. <laughs> I did, I did. That was my fault. Uh, one, one more question for me, and uh, this is uh, just a, a kind of a practical example of how this might work out in a, in a school on its own. Uh, you know, Charles Haynes was mentioning uh, that religious expression in schools and, and how it is, uh, you know, happening more often now than, than he used to, and... Uh, the idea of student-led groups. Uh, you, typically, these groups would be uh, funded by a teacher, not funded, but uh, sponsored by a teacher, I imagine. Uh, would they not? Don't they, they don't need a teacher advisor or anything? Uh, teachers can act as a monitor only, okay. but non-participatory manner. That's according to the Equal Access Act, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my, my question was about this idea of perhaps there was a teacher who was monitoring, um, per, for example, a, a Christian group at a high school. Um, and say you, you know, this, this teacher uh, perhaps, you know, promoted it, the group, not said you have to come or you, you certainly can't get extra credit for coming, but at least invited students to come. Um, in a way, isn't that sort of an implicit, implicit pressure of students to think that uh, perhaps they feel pressured to go because then the teacher will like them and they might help their grade, or uh, perhaps they feel a need to, uh, you know, portray Christianity well in a certain class or study or a paper uh, in order to get a good rate on that paper. Is, is that a, a possibility? Is, how does that play out in these guidelines? Well, it hasn't been, it hasn't been that, that hasn't been a real problem because uh, the Equal Access Act, I think, was passed to prevent that kind of problem. Now, it doesn't always work perfectly, but uh, in most schools where I go and work and see the religious clubs, they are student-formed and they are student-led. Uh, and uh, teachers know that they're not supposed to either encourage or discourage participation. Uh, I mean, I think opening up the conversation for student religious and political clubs uh, has changed the landscape in schools in a lot of ways and uh, has done great things. I mean, you know, when I hear some of the arguments about why we should have alternatives, and that we seem to jump to that pretty quickly, obviously, because a lot of folks think we should have alternatives, and and that's a, that's a good discussion to have. But a lot of the things that I hear about the, the, the schools today don't sound like the schools I visit or I work with. You know, I mean, some of them. But I work with a lot of schools who are doing tremendous things to, to teach controversial issues, to engage students, the democracy prep schools, the, you know, uh, Generation Global used to be face to faith where students are are in video conferences with students in Pakistan and India and, and, and talking about their faith and their differences. Uh, I mean, I, 
so I don't recognize a lot of the schools I work with. I'm not saying that the, I know the majority of schools, and this is anecdotal, but I have, you know, 25, 30 years been working with schools. Lots of teachers are committed to, to uh, real diversity. Uh, I do think that there is a worldview uh, that's assumed by many uh, public school educators, um, most uh, largely unconsciously, but it is, and it's in the curriculum, and I, and I think we need to push back. I think there should be... Uh, we should teach multiple ways of seeing the world, uh, I, and we have a lot of work to do. So I'm not saying that we are there, but uh, I do think that public education has moved a long way in that direction, at least in my experience, and, and we should acknowledge that. Brief comments? Or? All right, we'll go on to audience Q&A now. Uh, standard DC event Q&A rules do apply. Please wait until I call on you. Please make sure you wait until the microphone arrives, or else no one on the internet will be able to hear your question. Uh, if anyone exists, if anyone exists uh, make sure that you do announce your name and affiliation, and please make sure that you do ask uh, a question and make sure it is brief because we do have less than 10 minutes for audience Q&A. We do want to make sure we get to a few of them. Uh, so let's start with uh, this gentleman here in the back. Yeah. I'm with the Center for Pluralism. You've been talking about pluralism, and uh, the very simple way to define that is learning to respect the otherness of other and accept the genetic uniqueness of each one of us, then conflicts fade and solutions emerge. I would like you guys to define pluralism. I think that's a fine definition. Uh, I, I think uh, pluralism goes beyond diversity, at least as I present it. It involves a structural element as well the right not only to hold different views and so forth, but to express those through organizational life and other structures, uh, including the kinds of public structures that, that um, uh, we find necessary in a complex society. So a pluralistic society like the Netherlands recognizes that, that you can promote freedom most effectively through allowing different uh, religious and philosophical groups to have their own schools and other kinds of institutions and have them treated on an equal basis. I would agree with that definition, except I would add this. I'm going to quote my good friend and mentor, Oz Guinness, on this. And I think we need a vision of chartered pluralism in the United States, which is why all the work that we've done is based in civic principles and ideals. It's based in First Amendment frameworks. And it's been successful because of that. Because that's where, across our differences, we can have some agreement. It's our charter. Now, within that, I think we should recognize our deep differences, and I think we should engage them. And, I, we, and I'm trying to work for public schools that do that. The unity at the expense of our diversity of our early history, we've, we've got to move out of that to a unity in the interests of our diversity. But we still need the unity. And the unity, in my view, is the charter. So we need a charter across our differences, and I say constitutional principles, ideals, are the charter. And within that, we protect the rights of people to be who they are. We can disagree as to whether public schools can ever achieve that or do that. I'm working for that in public education, but I'm not here to say that that's the only way or it's even going to be successful completely. But I do think that's the vision that will work in the interest of every American. See, just real quick, it just seems to me that Diversity or pluralism is all people are different in myriad ways, different values, different backgrounds, different desires for their lives. And what we need 
at least from a government standpoint, is a government that treats us as individuals. And I think the way that you get the sort of um, sort of cohesive, harmonious society has to happen in civil society. It's below the level of government. It's people themselves coming together. And there's actually research that talks about how you bridge uh, intergroup differences. And for the most part, you can't be ordered to do it successfully. It can't be engineered. It has to be something that people choose to do. And I think the good news is we have great historical evidence that people will choose to do it, often out of mutual self-interest. They know that working with people who are different than they are can be beneficial to them both. I, I, I would just add one thing. I, I, I think that the kind of behaviors we're talking about, working across diversities, are not natural. They must be taught. Whenever I give a talk pleading for the kind of controversial issues that Charles Haynes wants in the school, inevitably somebody in the audience will say, you're just a relativist, you know? You, you, you know and, and my response is, oh, I'm not. The system I'm advocating for is anything but relativist because it requires certain shared ideals and principles in order to work. Nobody comes out of the womb saying, well, I'm going to listen to what you say, and even if, you, even if I don't agree, I won't kill you, well, right? Um, tolerance, respect for difference and diversity, those are learned behaviors. And the reason we need schools, the primary reason, is to teach that. Let's go right here in the second row in the middle. Thank you. Uh, Mark Neterno, Inter Interactivity Foundation. I'm wondering what you do with uh, sin, because um, I think, at least in my religious tradition, and I did go to religious schools, it was a fundamental thing. Uh, I can remember as a child being told that even to go to a, uh, a, a church or a ceremony of another religion was sinful. Um, and I think the big elephant in the room is that Many of the religions uh, hold that certain behaviors and certain beliefs that other religions may hold or secular people may have or may even be lawful are sinful. And I, you know, even if you're teaching about that religion, I don't see how you avoid that and I don't see how you avoid other people in the room, in the classroom, uh, who may be of a different religion or have different behaviors, feeling extremely uncomfortable, just being told that um, you know what you do sexually or what you do with your belief systems is not just different; it's sinful. It's on the it lead you to the you know on the road to hell, even though that road is paved with good intentions. I mean, what do we do with sin? It, 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 nobody has mentioned it. And I think it's fundamental to the whole debate. Thank you. I think that's much less common than you might assume. I've, in recent weeks, read a half a million words of the transcripts that my doctoral students did of, uh, of their interviews with kids in these Islamic high schools across the country. And what I find is appreciation of differences, the excitement of the of the uh, field projects, the service projects they're doing with the kids from the local Catholic school, the... Uh, you know, the ways in which they are playing sports against the evangelical uh, school kids or the public school kids, 
Um, I think one of the most encouraging things, if, if, if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, the fundamental change that occurred worldwide at a Vatican II largely grew out of the experience of Catholics in the United States with being able to function in a pluralistic society. John Courtney Murray and others helped to, uh, to make religious freedom and democracy fundamental convictions of the Catholic Church as it never was, as they never were before. And I'm deeply hopeful that the experience of Muslims in the United States, if the present craziness uh, which is occurring uh, politically can be, be muzzled, and the Washington Post today is very good about that, is, um, is, can in turn have an impact upon uh, Muslim communities in Western Europe and beyond as, as they see that, in fact, it's possible for people of deep religious conviction to live side by side as citizens, to learn to trust each other, and to work together. Uh, Catholics and Protestants learned that in the United States, and I, uh, Jews and Christians learned that in the United States, and I'm deeply hopeful that, that Muslims and others can also learn that in the United States in ways that will have a worldwide effect. I just wanted to add that how you teach about religions in public schools is a big topic. Uh, but we're not starting from zero here. I mean, we've been doing this a long time. Uh, many world religions teachers I know, and as I visit their classrooms in different parts of the country, many of them are doing a very good job of addressing just what you're saying. But they have to set it up properly in the beginning of the year. I think all social studies teachers should be setting this up properly with a, with a civic framework, understanding how we're going to talk about differences, parents knowing that we're going to deal with differences. I think if it's framed properly and it's rooted in, in a genuine effort to have a dialogue and a and discussion and not uh, uh, a fight, and students have to learn, as John says, they have to learn the, the, the skills of civil dialogue and how to address deep differences. Uh, the essentials of dialogue program that the Tony Blair Faith Foundation is using in many public schools is, is excellent at this. I think every teacher should be using the essentials of dialogue program to, to set this up. Once you're there, though, I have listened in on many video conferences involving mostly students from all parts of the world, and they do a great job of talking about, we believe this is sinful, you believe that is sinful, and let's talk about it. But it is how you set it up, it is how you talk about it. But of course we must talk about it. We can't teach about religions without talking about these deep differences and worldviews. But if we have a, if we have a classroom of trust and of, of civility, then it frees the teacher and the students to really dig into issues that are very, very painful and difficult. I have seen this happen over and over again. We can do this. Uh, I think we need more of it than we have, but there are many, many successful world religions courses in the United States today doing exactly that. And with that, we will have to conclude. But the good news is we're about to take a 20-minute break, so if you have a question, feel free to come up and ask one of our speakers. Uh, so as I said, this is a 20-minute break. There is coffee, there is tea, there is soda, there is water out in the winter garden on the first floor. Uh, restrooms are on the lower level if you need one. Uh, you turn left when you reach the bottom of the stairs, and the restrooms will be down the hallway on your right. And with that, we're now in a break. We'll be back promptly at 1045. Thank you, everybody.